from the Miriam Institute, this is the Israel Defense and Diplomacy Forum podcast. 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 Hello, and welcome to the Israel Defense and Diplomacy Forum podcast, or IDDF, as we like to call it. A product of the Miriam Institute, published in proud collaboration with the National Interest. Every episode, former Israeli Deputy National Security Advisor Chuck Freilich is joined by Ambassador Danny Ayalon, who served as Israel's ambassador to the United States of America from 2002 to 2006. They came together in order to discuss hot-button issues emanating from the State of Israel and to analyze and debate Israel's policy, political, security, and diplomatic considerations on matters of domestic and global importance from a distinctly Israeli vantage point. Chuck hails from Israel's political left. Danny hails from Israel's political right. And in this show, they'll present you with their comment and critique of decisions and events from Israel for your consideration. Please take a moment to subscribe to the show if you haven't already done so. And be sure to leave a review at wherever it is that you download your podcasts from. And now it's over to the hosts of the IDDF podcast, Chuck Freilich and Danny Ayalon. Hey, Danny, good to be with you again and welcome home. You're in the Galapagos. Yes, thank you, Chuck. Always good to be home. It was a fascinating uh, trip, actually following the footsteps of Charles Darwin <laughs> in, uh, <laughs> in real wild and natural habitat. And uh, I can tell you that... Um, the, the one most, uh, I would say, uh, you know, fascinating uh, creature we met there was Mr. George. George is a tortoise who is 150 years old. And uh, guess what now? Some scientists are looking into splicing and splitting his genome, doing, uh, trying to find the, the codes in his chromosomes and genes that make this longevity. Maybe it can be useful for humans. So uh, it's always good to go into the far corners of the world. You never know what you will come up with. And he beat uh, the Jewish 120, Mr. That's George. Right. Yes, he was, right. born, he was born in the 1800s. Yes. Wow. wow. And still alive and kicking. <laughs> <laughs> well, while you were away, some interesting things happened. Uh, maybe we shouldn't have allowed you to go abroad because yeah. <laughs> we we now have the most radical, religious, ultra-nationalist coalition in Israel's history. Some people thought it might not be that bad and any bad changes might take a while. Well, I would say in the first couple of weeks, and this is not a laughing matter, they are already take, beginning to take apart Israeli democracy and Israel's judicial system, beginning already to cause damage, not just that to that, but to our national security establishment, Israel's international standing, and uh, to the educational system. If the reforms that are currently underway, uh, led by the new justice minister, Yariv Levin, but clearly with the full backing of Mr. Netanyahu go through, then in the, a matter of a couple of months, because that's what the legislation will take, but within a couple of months, Israel will become an illiberal democracy along the lines of Turkey and Hungary. Well, 
Chuck, I agree with you that indeed, if all these things happen, this might be the course which nobody here, uh, let's say, uh, likes, uh, certainly not in the international community. I would really pay attention to our best friends and allies in Washington. They are my litmus test of uh, how they see things and uh, what is real and what is not. Because it is true that we have heard some um, outrageous um, declarations and statements of uh, intent, but um, I think there is a very, very big gap between the statements and what is going to uh, happen on the ground, uh, really, uh, in actuality. Uh, well, when it comes I, when it comes to the judicial reform, uh, this they've already they're preparing the legislation. To, some of the the first the Knesset discussions are taking place today. Yes, and now we are going to see if there will be any changes. They already uh, alluded to the fact that uh, there may be changes, but uh, I think it's a very very brazen and uh, I would say almost aggressive tactic by Yariv Levin where he puts you know everything on the table in the most extreme way. So that allows him to back down and then find some medium ground. If this is the okay. case, it may be maybe I look at it or I like to, maybe it's a wishful thinking. But um, the, the truth is that uh, we do need some reforms in the judicial system, certainly not a uh, radical one that will hurt its purpose, which is basically uh, the, the separation of uh, power and... Um, and um, um, protecting uh, minority rights, protecting uh, anyone who needs uh, any uh, legal um, assistance against uh, um, government, against any um, strong powers, whether it's a, a monopoly in the economic uh, sphere or anywhere else. Let's just make clear for our listeners that today's podcast will address two totally different issues that have really no connection between them. One is we will begin with the changes to Israel's judicial system and what many would consider to be an attack on Israeli democracy. And then we will turn to the uh, role of China in the Middle East following the visit of Mr. Xi in Saudi Arabia just a couple of weeks ago. So we'll start with the Israeli domestic issue. As I said, the legislation is already beginning. Aharon Barak, the former Supreme Court justice, who some people consider the greatest legal mind in Israel's history, and certainly not everybody has to agree with his approach, but he's certainly a very wise man, I think we'll agree on that, uh, whose voice should certainly be heard and his opinions taken into account. And he says that if Levine's reforms are fully implemented. And again, it looks like it's going to happen with this Netanyahu's backing. I quote him, this will be the beginning of the destruction of the third temple. It is a clear and present danger to Israeli democracy. We'll have only one branch of government. That isn't democracy. And another former Supreme Court justice, also highly respected, many mazuz, the result of the over, override law, we'll explain in one second what that means, the result of the overli override law will be a state without a separation of powers, which has only one power that controls the Knesset and the judicial system. I don't know of any political science in which a state like that can be considered a democracy. 
So yes. why, don't you, why don't you explain to the listeners uh, what we're talking about here? Well, first of all, uh, I would be very cautious about Aaron Barak, which I have a lot of respect to. But, you know, he's speaking from his own position. Uh, I think he looks at it also from a personal point of view, because uh, I believe that what we see now uh, is a, um, uh, I would say, a reaction to what he started back in 1992 when he was the uh, president of the Supreme Court. Uh, with the, what is called here a um, a legal, uh, I would say a, a legal revolution, when he really tilted the balance very much towards uh, the Supreme Court, when he says everything could be uh, judged, and um, the, really the intervention that uh, he was looking at uh, with uh, uh, government activities was, um, let's say, he took it further than before. Um, so. Uh, this is quite extreme to say that this is the beginning of the destruction of the, the, the third temple. I, I don't uh, buy that. With the many mazuz, I agree uh, much more. Because if indeed, and maybe we should spell out a little bit what is this uh, revolution that Yariv Levin, Minister of Justice, is talking about. If this will take effect, there are some things which really will make it, um, I would think, uh, uh, appalling and will hurt. Uh, not only uh, um, the human rights for every Israeli, by the way, uh, you and me and everyone else, uh, but also uh, we will kind of strip away a legal iron dome that Israel has always had with the um, independent uh, Supreme Court, which also had a lot of credibility and trust within the international community. And uh, we can discuss further what, what really it means. So let's say, I, I would say that this... Uh, uh, judicial uh, revolution uh, probably has about uh, I will not go with, with all the minutiae there are a lot of uh, details which you know can confuse the overall look but uh, I would say that there are three major uh, points here one is an, um, the overruling the uh, ability of the Knesset right the, the, the Israeli parliament the uh, um, legislative branch uh, having an overall power to, uh, to rule out um, uh, the, the uh, Supreme Court, decisions by the Supreme Court, and doing that by a simple majority of 61. Uh, I think this is certainly unacceptable, and really it is um, rendering the judicial system to just uh, being a, uh, not even a fig leaf, and, um, and, and I want to go down a little bit because it's something that really, I think, makes me uh, wonder uh, how uh, uh, um, gullible maybe of the Israeli uh, populace can be when they heed to the uh, argument by Yariv Levine and others, you know, especially in this government, that majority rules. This is the true democracy. This is the result of the elections. Well, first of all, about this uh, majority rules, it is true that this is one of the elements of democracy. But with democracy comes also minority rights, comes also uh, tolerance and civil rights, and also comes the separation of power. And uh, when we call majority rules, this is only within the rules of the game. So in elections, you elect for uh, a government that you want to affect their policies, but within the framework of the rules of the games. 
And I always uh, use this uh, one example is that uh, uh, about this uh, majority uh, rule, democracy. You know, if you look, you know, we just finished the Mondial. So you look at the, uh, at the football or a soccer uh, game, right? You have 21, um, uh, let's say, players on the field, but you have one referee, one judge that he calls. And his calls are not subject to a, a majority vote because these are the uh, rules of the game. The same thing is here. You cannot change it, and certainly not by a special uh, or, or a, uh, a very, very simple majority, because then you really, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a mockery out of... Uh, right. If they did a special system. majority of some people spoke in 80 or 90 members of Knesset, that would be one thing. But 61 exactly. is unacceptable. It would have been more serious had they suggested a majority of 80 or even 75. But uh, this is not the, the case here. And a simple majority of 61, I mean, we have to understand, 61 is the minimum number of mandates, of seats in the Knesset in order to form a government. That means the government, the coalition, can do whatever they want. That's and right. This and is, this coalition has 64. Uh, right. So this is totally unacceptable. Uh, and also, again, it will weaken so much the uh, our judicial system, and especially the Supreme Court, is that not only it will infringe upon the rights of Israelis themselves, but also, as I mentioned, from a foreign policy, from a security, national security point of view, unfortunately, you know that we have been... Uh, subject to many condemnations by international uh, organizations, including um, Commission of Inquiries. There was the Goldstone Report, if you recall. Sure. There is the Tribunal in, ha in Hague, ICC, so far. And there were always calls to, uh, for Israel to, uh, to be subject to, uh, to, to actually allow International Investigation Commission to come over here investigate the Israeli uh, military people, officers, ministers, and whatever. And we have always resisted, and very, very strongly, because we said not only we are a sovereign state, and we are not going to let anyone else interfere here uh, and take away uh, the authority and, uh, of the, and the role of the, um, of the government or, or the, the democratic system here, but also because it is independent. And, uh, and internationally, the Israeli democratic system uh, was looked upon as a very effective one, allowing basically to Israel to investigate itself. The judicial just system. The judicial system, just like the UK does, or mm -hmm. just like France, or just like the United States. We should keep that. And this is why on this first element, which I think is the most problematic one, of uh, actually giving priority and, uh, and and supremacy to to the Knesset over the Supreme Court. This is something which I absolutely, absolutely am against. And hopefully, we will see this uh, changing. The second this thing, is, I mean, this is where both Barak and the Mazuz were saying, in the end, Israel will have just one branch of government. Because, absolutely, because the executive in parliamentary systems controls the legislative branch in any event. And now if the executive branch can control the, the judicial branch, because it can override with just 61, 
in effect, we have one branch. And this is all designed basically for one or one and a half purposes, which is to uh, allow Netanyahu to avoid mm -hmm. the judicial outcome that he doesn't want. And maybe Mr. Derry as well, the Minister of Interior now. Yeah. All right. I go to the second one. Yeah, yeah, but but uh, one thing here, it goes down even further, and and this is I think is worthwhile um, elaborating. There today, unfortunately, the the uh, judicial system is the only real uh, counterweight to the government and also to the Knesset because of our coalition system. There is hardly a, a there is no firewall between mm -hmm. the two other. You know, uh, po uh, you know uh, the powers, the uh, the legislative and the executive. They are pretty much one and the same. And you know, I've been in the Knesset uh, for um, four years, and I saw how there is no separation of power between legislative and and executive. Why? Because of our system, the coalition system. Many, uh, at least twenty-five to thirty, now even more percent of members of Knesset are also member of the government. So I was always joking, as a member of Knesset, I should oversee my action as a member of government. <laughs> you know, if, if this isn't a conflict of, of interest, I would have loved to see, you know, it's in the United States, you know, you have a real firewall between the Congress and the administration. It's not the, the case here. So this is why it's even doubly dangerous if you give the, uh, the Knesset the um, let's say the overall authority to overrule uh, decisions or passing on judgment by the Supreme Court. And as I mentioned, it is something that uh, should not uh, be done. So th this is the, the first thing is the uh, supremacy of the Knesset, which of course should be uh, um, taken out of any uh, reform of the judicial system. And this is not to say that there are not uh, some reforms who should take place in this judicial system. The second thing is, the way judges and justices are being appointed. And here, uh, by actually giving the politicians the, uh, the power to appoint justices, also it actually uh, points out that the justices actually are under the thumb, under the authority of, this, uh, of, of the politicians, and um, they would be then just... Uh, you know, uh, puppets of politicians. This is also something that shouldn't be done in the United States. You know, some here say, well, the uh, the United States is appointing uh, justices also by politicians. You know, there is... Um, in, They're even elected to, in some places. And they are even elected someplace. But this is a totally different system. And also, also, first of all, I said there is a true separation over there between the legislative and the executive. And also, there is a constitution. Once you have a constitution, you know pretty much what are the parameters, what are the rules of the game. We do not have a constitution, so we cannot um, just uh, allow by uh, some uh, incidental majority of 61 really making uh, decisions or, or laws that could really change the um, characteristics or the character of of the state, so this is something. And so here the second. So first of all, they have the sixty-one override. Now they're saying that the politicians will appoint the justices, and affect that the people under indictment 
for example, the prime minister, uh, will be able to decide who their judges are. So I mean, this is a total uh, subversion of the legal process. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And then they want to get rid of the so-called reasonability test, which was one of the criteria that the Supreme Court used for weighing things to decide whether a governmental action was reasonable or not. And the truth is that in the last 30 years, the Knesset has passed thousands of laws. The Supreme Court has struck down 22 so far. So this argument that uh, the Supreme Court has become such an activist judiciary and has gone beyond the bounds of reason in this sense, I, uh, I just don't see how that argument really bears any weight. Absolutely. And then the final thing that they want to do, if this wasn't enough, is to split the role of the attorney general into two. The attorney general until now, otherwise known as the legal advisor to the cabinet, has been a very powerful figure because he or now she had to basically tell the government, in other words, the cabinet, whether planned policies uh, were legal or not. And when the legal advisor said that a certain policy was not, it's not as if the cabinet couldn't go ahead and try anyway. They could and did on some occasions, but it made it very, very hard for them. Uh, basically, it was a binding or just about a binding legal opinion. They want to do away with that by splitting the position into two. Uh, they may, by the way, be trying to force the current attorney general out so they can appoint their own person. And then that person will then decide that there's no, uh, quote unquote, public interest in continuing Netanyahu's trial. And they're also going to make the legal advisors in each of the ministries uh, po uh, political appointments, as opposed to their current status where they were appointed by the attorney general. And so that's just further politicization of the entire system. Yes, um, this uh, issue of the um, attorney uh, general or the legal advisor of the government, it is true that uh, he or I mean, the position has become the most powerful in the Israeli system. And here, I think there is some merit about looking into this uh, role and whether a reform should take place, because there are some, you know, there, 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 some critical points and some criticism over the judicial system is, I think, uh, not only reasonable, but is justified. First of all, there is no transparency whatsoever. Uh, the attorney general and his... Uh, you know, big department of thousands of uh, of uh, lawyers. They have no um, system of control. Everything is done without um, any uh, transparency to uh, the public. And we know that there were some injustices done, uh, how they treat themselves. We know of uh, a few bad apples in the systems that were given a slack just because they were members of the club, uh, the attorney general club or the judicial system at large. This is something that should be changed. Again, not a revolution, but transparency and have some kind of a uh, ombudsman or a um, monitoring department, just like there is a monitoring department over any 
branch of the of the government or any ministry. Uh, the IDF has this monitoring or uh, what is it called? The Mevakera uh, Klali or uh, the controller. An ombudsman, yeah. Yeah, ombudsman, the state controller. Here, they are the only ones without. So this is something that uh, uh, is looked upon as uh, arrogance by uh, some of them. And, uh, and, uh, and this is what brings about, you know, some of the, uh, let's say, anger. Uh, in uh, in you know in the in the some in the Israeli public, so okay, this is of course there is no system that that cannot be improved somewhat that cannot be reformed, but right. I think I think we can wind up this section by agreeing that the Israeli legal system uh, has been considered one of the best in the world, and here we have people who aren't motivated by what you're saying is of course there is there have been some abuses there are abuses in every place in the world. Uh, that's human life. It's not yeah. that these are people but, who are trying to corrupt the system to keep their their asses out of jail. Let's uh, let's be fr frank about this. Absolutely, but there was unfortunately some corruption within the legal system, and they kind of looked the other way. So anyway, no no system should be immune from checking them and okay. reporting. Uh, you know the way, for instance, they appoint judges. So the the discussion is also being classified and you cannot even see what uh, went on into the discussions. What were the reasons? One was elected and, uh, and not the other. Last point uh, about um, the, uh, the Attorney General. I'm not sure that we should not look seriously upon dividing the role of the, um, the legal counsel. Just like in the United States, you have the Attorney General and you have Solicitor, so, solicitor, uh, solicitor General uh, I think this is too much for one person to carry as, first of all, to be the legal advisor to the government and also to be ahead of uh, the, the, the legal system and, uh, and you know, oversee uh, indictments and conventions. I don't think that this will uh, weaken our uh, judicial system, but this is something that can be looked upon. But my point is some reform is needed, but certainly not such a radical revolution, which actually will be against Israel's interest, Israel's domestic interest, and also Israel's international interests. Okay. And I think it certainly shouldn't be done by people who have a personal, a strong personal interest in what's being done. Absolutely. Another thing that they're doing is a variety of measures which will lead to the weakening of the civil service. And Israel always had a... Well, there have always been, of course, complaints about Israeli bureaucracy, which was certainly the case, bureaucracy in the negative sense of the word. But it was also always a nonpartisan and unpoliticized civil service, a professional civil service. And that was part of the strength. And now what they're doing is breaking up ministries uh, in a, in a totally absurd manner. Now, it's not as if this hasn't been done in the past. It has but they're really going to new extremes so that Netanyahu can basically appoint all of the Likud members, members of Knesset, uh, just about all of them, to be a minister of something. And um, we now will have three different ministers dealing with defense affairs. Okay, so in addition to the defense minister, uh, Ben Gvir as minister of national security is given 
responsibility for the border police who play a critical role in defense issues, in dealing with protests, riots, and terrorism in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem. So you've got Ben Gvir, who's a political pyromaniac in charge of them. Uh, Smotrich, the new finance minister, will be given responsibility for the civil administration uh, and the coordinator of government activities in the, in the territories. So he will be the biggest player, actually, in things that have to do with settlements and uh, Palestinian affairs in the West Bank. And it's not just in the defense establishment. It's just about every ministry has been broken up. Political appointments, uh, the directors general, who some might like in Britain were almost like permanent secretaries. They were non-political appointees. They will now be political appointees. There's been a report, uh, this is, I don't think it's been confirmed yet, but it seems to be a good report from good sources that they intend to fire or at least look at anyone who's been hired in the civil service for the last two years. And if they don't have the right background, they may be fired. Uh, The detectives and the uh, investigators, excuse me, who looked into the Netanyahu charges uh, the Netanyahu files will be, well, they won't be promoted if not fired. They're going to recognize uh, yeshiva degrees as being the equivalent of a of an academic degree for purposes of, of appointment in the civil service. That's just to mean to let the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox, get jobs that they weren't qualified before. We used to have a professional nonpartisan civil service. Well, here, Chuck, unfortunately, I have to agree with you. I think this uh, the civil service should not be touched. You know, uh, there is this old saying, if it ain't broken, don't fix it. We've had, I would say, a very good exemplary uh, civil service that uh, has really helped uh, building the state, maintaining the state, and uh, especially in the, uh, in the security establishment, uh, I think uh, it's a, you know, if you uh, have a disjointed system uh, in the security and in the defense, it just, you know, um, allows uh, for, I would say, disarray and not coordinated, well-coordinated uh, efforts. And we do have great challenges, you know, Palestinian terror, um, radical Islamist uh, uh, terror. There are, of course, some um, uh, threats uh, within uh, the country, and basically, you know, if we look uh, at it, uh, you know, fairly, the uh, the reason why Itamar Benvir, which you call a pyromaniac, I hope that he will uh, uh, rise up to the challenge and his responsibility, but it remains to be seen. But the, the fact uh, of the matter is that he was um, so successful in these elections is because of what here. Uh, is being considered as lack of governability, especially in uh, the periphery. Uh, periphery, I mean mostly the Negev and the um, and the Galilee, where you have uh, people like squatters who just uh, take away um, public land. Uh, they are also um, closing roads or throwing uh, uh, rocks on. Uh, 
passerbys, sometimes even... Uh, There's organized uh, crime there. There's organized crime there uh, against yes. uh, farmers uh, and, organized and, crime. and small businesses. But uh, unfortunately, this protection racket. Crime, yes, you call it organized crime, but I think it also has a nationalistic it does. element because it does. we see that these crimes are only, only against Jewish farmers mm -hmm. or Jewish uh, travelers. And this is something that uh, Israelis uh, cannot tolerate. And this is why Ben Gvir, who said he will restore you know, order, law and order in the Negev and in the Galilee, in the periphery, this is why he was so much, um, you know, such a popular um, party. But here, here is the catch. In order to uh, uh, reestablish uh, governability and law and order, he should really concentrate on, on uh, going and hunting down, uh, whether it's uh, terrorists, Homegrown or from uh, overseas. Overseas is actually uh, somebody else's, uh, yeah, like that's that not head. right? That's but let's say story. homegrown and also, uh, um, you know, um, criminals. And as you mentioned, some uh, uh, mafia type uh, family, you know, uh, crimes and all. This is what he should concentrate, and uh, and and by doing that, he should just have a very um, cohesive, not just a policy, but also a force that he can control, which is a police force or whatever you call it, but certainly not put a uh, kind of a uh, potpourri of uh, uh, different units from the military, from the police, like you said, the border control, this is not the way to do it. And also, when you say pyromaniac, I believe you also alluded to the fact that in his first week uh, in office, he went up to the um, Temple Mount, which also, this is not what he was elected to do. Uh, and also the way he did it was, uh, I think, it actually he uh, he lost uh, the point that he would um, was going to make. If he thought he's establishing Israel's sovereignty over the Temple Mount, you don't do it in the break of dawn when there is hardly light outside. You go there for only 13 uh, uh, minutes and it's like, you know, checking the, the box. Um, so in this case, the civil administration should be put intact. Also, when you say that the Minister Smotrich, the Minister of Finance now, will have the uh, authority over the civil administration in the territories, is also going to infringe upon the uh, authority and the ability to act of the Minister of Defense. And this could be harmful for not just for Israeli interests at large, but also for the very own security of the Israelis, the settlers who live in the territory, if they, uh, because if, if there is no synergy and there is no very, very close co coordination, seamless coordination between all the um, government um, uh, branches, um, then it is a, an opening for havoc, for a crisis. And here, I hope things will. Uh, not go the way they wanted to go. By the way, it's not just the security, it's not just the um, defense establishment or education, it's also in the in the foreign affairs. You know, we have a minister of foreign affairs, but we have also a minister of strategic affairs, which know, we, we know he will be pretty much responsible for relations with the United States. And again, here, 
you have a broken uh, system of too many elements doing trying to do the same thing and you have a ministry of the, of the diaspora which will be responsible for part of the picture and a ministry of Hasbara which will be part of the picture so they're breaking up everything all the ministries I hope you're enjoying this episode of the IDDF podcast a product of the Miriam Institute remember Chuck and Danny want to hear from you directly so please send your comments and questions to them via email address IDDF at miriaminstitute.org a selection of those will be read out on air finally please be sure to visit the Miriam Institute website at www.miriaminstitute.org where you can learn more about our collaborations with the US military academies the US army and our campus work as well as our gold standard strategy and policy tours to the state of Israel You'll also be able to avail yourselves of our written commentary and analysis penned by top-tier experts, which we're very proud to provide to you for free. And you'll be able to learn how you can invest in the work of the Miriam Institute. Now, without further ado, it's back to Chuck and Danny for the rest of the show. In the north, which sort of become Israel's wild, wild west, so to speak. But that's nearly not what Ben Gvir is about. That's only part of the picture. A very important part of the picture is uh, his uh, whole approach to the Palestinian issue and going up to the Temple Mount. Now, I think we all agree that Jews should have the right to have access to the Temple Mount. Uh, but what he did was clearly an act of provocation. Uh, he went up there for 13 minutes at dawn when there was nobody around, nobody knew. So, yes, he could say to his voters, I fulfilled my electoral promise. To me, this is a typical example of right wing symbolism, doing something to make a point uh, which has no practical value, but it does actually have practical consequences. And the first one was that the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, with which Israel has been developing a remarkable relationship in the last uh, two, three years. And this is actually a huge achievement of Netanyahu's. Well, they canceled his planned visit, which was supposed to take place in the, in the next week or so, uh, in response as, a, as an understandable act of uh, expression of anger. The Security Council convened for an emergency session to discuss this. The, the U.S. blocked a decision there. But the General Assembly went ahead and asked that the International Court of Justice, they referred it to the court and asked them to render an opinion on the legal status of the occupation, of the settlements. Uh, but Chuck, to be fair, the, the uh, General Assembly of the, the U.N. referred the, the issue of uh, occupation, quote-unquote, to the tribunal in, in Hague before the visit on the mountain, on the Temple Mount of, uh, of Ben Gvir. So I think these are two separate uh, issues. And uh, unfortunately, we do uh, now um, sustain a political warfare, a legal warfare by the Palestinian Authority. We're trying to delegitimize Israel, render our, us a pariah state, apartheid state, and all these uh, bad names. We are in a very, very bitter um, conflict, uh, war with the, with, with the Palestinians. And, and, uh, 
and and you a mentioned diplomatic war. a diplomatic war well sometimes it's also on the ground because of the lack of control mm -hmm. by the Palestinian authority so we see terrorism springing up in Jenin area in Nablus Shrem area let alone of course the Hamas and uh, and uh, and Hezbollah which uh, also are cooperating and unfortunately but you were rightly so to say Jews should have the right to visit their holiest uh, of holy um, for more than 3,000 years, what kept us as a people, um, even uh, during um, calamities and uh, 2,000 years of exile, and uh, despite all these trials and tribulations, what kept us as a people was Temple Mount and Jerusalem, the cherishing of our land right but we're, our... not, but we're not talking here about the final status of jerusalem in a peace right. agreement we're talking about an act of symbolism uh to fulfill an electoral promise and the result is that we're condemned everywhere the entire world has condemned us the u.s has condemned us all of the arab states including the ones that we're at peace with uh europe everybody has condemned us uh we will probably now face uh, formal condemnation by the International Court of Justice. It may also be referred to the International Criminal Court. Uh, we're going to reinvigorate the BDS movement, which hasn't been doing that well in recent years. And we bring this on ourselves for no effective reason. So, well, yeah. Well, so, you, you expressed the hope before that, I, that maybe Ben Greer will be responsible. And he won't be the political pyromaniac that I fear. Well, at least his first week in office, I think he proved uh, the negative well, side of the picture. I would say it very much depends upon Bibi Netanyahu. I you agree. Know, with, you know, we have to remember that he defied Bibi's request for him not to go uh, on Temple Mount. He went anyway. Uh, and, the minimum, uh, yeah, the minimum to get away with it. I think. Yeah. So, so the bad news is. That you know, why once defying uh, the, the prime minister's request, it's undermining the authority of the prime minister and a, a, a guy, Belgir, who ran on governability. I mean, actually, is hurting governability by actually undermining the prime minister. That's right. That's the right. good news is that he went, as as you called it, in a cowardly way, just for 13 minutes, and um, and I think this is what. Um, brought about a very moderate response from the United States. Uh, if you believe in conspiracy uh, theories, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if Bibi Netanyahu did not uh, give the heads up to the administration, whether it's to Blinken or Biden himself, about this um, Ben Gvir's visit ahead of time, saying, well, don't worry. It's just a very short visit, a break of dawn. Nobody will mention it, no cameras nothing and uh, let's get this out of the way and the americans i think uh, acquiesced and we saw it with not only as you mentioned not only they uh, blocked a resolution by the security council con condemning israel they even blocked a presidential statement of condemnation which is lower it's weaker than a resolution it's just a statement they didn't even allow a statement so it seems like the administration is really moving towards um, or or at least giving the Netanyahu government a chance. They would like to work together with Netanyahu. There are so many uh, fish to fry, so to speak, which are on the joint table of uh, of joint interest between Israel and the United States. We'll speak about it later. China is one. Um, you know, Blinken 
Secretary of State Blinkel and uh, Jack Sullivan, the uh, the um, National, National Security, Security Advisor, Advisor, are both coming. So I think they are giving uh, Netanyahu uh, not only the benefit of the doubt and to the government, they really want to work with him. And it's all about Netanyahu, whether he will be able to really um, put down and, and, and uh, use his authority against all those other uh, ministers. So here, I am a little bit more optimistic than you, I guess, uh, by nature, I'm more optimistic. <laughs> and, uh, I'm, a, I'm an optimist. I used to be anyway. <laughs> and I say, let's wait and see. Uh, and about the breakdown or about this, uh, what they do, and, you know, all these uh, bad reforms, mixing and, and, and matching all kinds of uh, <laughs> departments, government departments that do not belong to each other, maybe this also will not uh, take effect because reality is stronger than anything else. Oh. And knowing Netanyahu, you know, he lets them, you know, play around. He gave them everything. The ministries have been established. They, they've all got their jobs now. Now, the, now we've, we'll see if they can really do something or they will be just, uh, you know, it could be just uh, ministry by, by names. We'll have right. to see. Here, you know, the Ministry of Defense in Israel uh, is by large the largest and the more, most effective um, uh, ministry. And I have yet to see any other ministries uh, challenge it. We'll have to wait and see. Okay. Um, as I've said in the past, I think to a certain extent, um, this is like the Titanic. Uh, but we've already run into the iceberg. Things haven't come up. We haven't sunk yet, but we've hit the we've hit the the iceberg. Maybe this and, time the iceberg will sink. <laughs> maybe it will. Maybe it will. I don't think so. I think that we are literally <clears throat> weeks away from becoming an illiberal democracy because the reforms that Levine is proposing will go through. Uh, maybe they'll be moderate, moderated slightly, modified, but not much. And we have there's to wait and see. yeah. Yeah, well, okay, we're we're just about there. To make matters better or not better, of course, the coalition agreements provide for lots more money for Haredi, for ultra-Orthodox institutions, especially the educational institutions, municipalities, which had the right until now uh, to determine educational programs in their cities, in their locales. Well, their responsibilities, their authority has been greatly cut back under the new proposals. They will have to share in funding Haredi schools, even if there are none in their area or if people don't want to. Local yeah, residents but Chuck, this has not been established and there is a growing movement of uh, municipalities and mayors opposing right. that. And uh, if they, uh, without their cooperation, this cannot take place because they well, have their own budgets. I, yeah, well, we'll see what happens. It may yeah. not be quite yeah. as bad as the, the proposals, but the outcome is going to be bad one way or the other. And the new finance minister, Smotrich, as, of course, an act of great brilliance, his first ministerial act was to cancel the law that was passed last year, imposing higher taxes on sweetened beverages. Israel has a distinction of being either the highest or number one or number two in the world in diabetes. And so the previous government passed legislation designed to 
reduce the consumption of sweetened products, not just beverages, uh, cookies and other things. And Smotrich just cancels it in his first day in office. This was a I had this was a sheer act of stupidity. There is no other uh, term I I can use here. Um, but here also, hopefully, uh, there will be uh, you know the, the people of Israel will be responsible enough that parents will not uh, allow their kids or will not actually nourish their kids with uh, too many sweets, which create, as you mentioned, uh, obesity and of course. Uh, uh, diabetes. But one last thing I want to mention, uh, which really concerns me the most uh, in what uh, this government wants to uh, to change in when it comes to uh, the um, the uh, law of return. They want to change the law of return, and this is something which I think is dangerous and it's immoral. Not only it can create a rift between Israel and the Jewish diaspora, uh, but also it will, um, it means that Israel actually um, will not allow protection for Jews or descendants of Jews anywhere around the world who wants to flee prosecution. There was a reason why the law of return included the third generation. That means uh, one grandfather or one grandparent uh, merits uh, being considered a Jew for the slow of return. Uh, this was done not only as a matter of uh, protecting the larger uh, families, not just the, the nuclear families, but also it was very symbolic because the Nuremberg laws of the Nazis, they also considered Jews those who had only one parent. You know, Jews who were all... One grandparent, yeah, Jews were totally assimilated in Germany or anywhere else. You know, they were so surprised that they were sent into the concentration uh, camp uh, just because of the uh, purity of the race, as the Nazis believed in. And I think that this symbolic uh, thing that, um, you know, endangered Jews then could endanger Jews now in this law of return not only for symbolic reasons, but also for real uh, protection of Jewish lives should not be changed. I couldn't agree more. On that happy note, let's change topics completely and talk about something that we have not yet spoken about in any of the previous podcasts. And that's Chinese involvement in the Middle East and uh, China-Israel, China-the US-Israel, that triangle. The reason we're bringing it up is because the Chinese leader, Xi, just visited the region a few weeks ago. He was in Saudi Arabia, and he held three different summits there, one with the GCC, with the Gulf countries, one with the Arab League, and of course, one with the Saudis themselves, his hosts. And there were a number of uh, really important decisions that were made there. Maybe I'll start with the ones in the diplomatic arena because it was actually quite interesting. Uh, first of all, the final communique in the summit with the entire Arab League says that on the one hand, the Arab countries will, I mean, this is really pr pretty dramatic. The Arab countries express full support for the principle of one China reject Taiwanese independence in all forms, 
and state that Taiwan is an integral part of China. Well, in return, they got a few things from the Chinese. First of all, China expressed support for a diplomatic resolution. There's a long-time dispute between the Gulf states and Iran over three islands in the Persian Gulf. Mm -hmm. And so here the Chinese are calling for a diplomatic resolution. Iran says that there's nothing to resolve. It's their territory. The more important issue from our point of view was that the Chinese took a much harder, harsher uh, tone towards Iran in the nuclear area and in terms of their regional uh, behavior. And basically, uh, they said that Iran uh, is in the wrong here. They called on them to fully cooperate with the International Atomic Energy Agency. They expressed support for preventing the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction in the region and uh, to ensure the peaceful nature of Iran's nuclear program. In terms of the regional behavior, they called for a discussion of Iran's, here and I'm quoting, destabilizing regional activities and their support for sectarian organizations, in other words, Hezbollah and others involved in terrorism. Uh, this was really a strong statement in favor of the Saudi and GCC, uh, the Arab position as a whole. You see this interesting quid pro quo, the Arab side recognizing Chinese concerns regarding Taiwan and China taking a pretty harsh stand on the Iranian issue in response. In addition, Chuck, we see a much greater economic involvement of China in the region, not only by increasing their imports of oil from the GCC country and uh, Saudi Arabia to the amount of uh, uh, almost uh, 40% of all the exports would be to China of, uh, of the oil, but also we see it in uh, uh, billions of dollars of, uh, of trade. And um, to the extent that China is becoming one of the largest trading partners of uh, the GCC countries and of uh, Saudi Arabia. If you add to that the fact that the Chinese, I mean, we talked about uh, military and uh, strategic and now um, economic um, on the nuclear issues. Uh, also, if they offer uh, to build reactors for these countries, and it's not just uh, to Saudi Arabia, but also Egypt is uh, waiting in the wings. Even Jordan is, is waiting for that. And the problem here is that China has uh, no restrictions almost on the use of uh, enriched materials, just like the United States. And this can open up here uh, the entire region to a um, arms race, a nuclear arms race, which uh, may be latent in the beginning, but can come up and, and explode, you know, when uh, it's uh, least expected. On top yeah. of that, diplomatically also, you know, that China has appointed an envoy to the Middle East, and uh, this also in direct rivalry uh, with the United States. So it seems like China is really well poised to really challenge the United States, not only in the South Pacific or the South China Sea, uh, but also in the Middle East. Well, first of all, uh, you're right. Uh, the Middle East is certainly another area of great power competition today, and it's a critical area because of the, particularly because of the energy reserves. I actually, when I was uh, the Deputy National Security Advisor in the Security Council, National Security Council, 
I met at the time with the Chinese Middle East envoy. And China was playing, or maybe he was the envoy just for the peace process. Maybe he's expanded it to a general Middle East envoy today. China at the time was playing really more of a background position. And now, as you're saying, they are poised to play a much more important role. There were some who believed that in the Middle East, there's a convergence actually between Chinese and American interests in the sense that both want strategic stability in the region. Uh, neither China nor the U.S. wants to see instability in the Arab countries. Uh, certainly don't want to see armed conflicts. And that may also explain why China made this big change in their policy towards the Iranian nuclear issue, at least the declarative statements that they made during the Xi visit, because they don't want to see Iran go nuclear potentially uh, sparking a conflict with the Gulf states and with Israel. Over half of their oil and gas imports come from the Middle East, 20 to 25 percent just from Saudi Arabia. That was $44 billion in 2022. That explains why uh, they attach so much importance to the visit to Saudi Arabia. But they also want a very strong relationship with Iran and They've actually been playing the two off of each other. Just to give a couple of examples, in 2016, they signed comprehensive strategic partnerships, both with Iran and Saudi Arabia, just a few weeks apart from each other. And then they conducted separate military exercises with both countries in 2017 and 19, just a few, again, a few weeks apart from each other. Uh, good news from our point of view is that they may be holding the deal that they signed with the Iranians in 2021, this uh, $400 billion, 25-year cooperation agreement, they may be holding it in abeyance, um, waiting to see how the nuclear issue evolves. They may have told the Iranians that we're not really able to go ahead with it, certainly not fully, until that's resolved. That's the optimistic approach. We'll see. In any event, uh, Saudi Chinese trade has increased fourfold in the last five years. And they signed all sorts of new deals in the Xi visit now, tens of billions of dollars. And of course, the area that we're most interested in is the one that you already raised, is potential uh, Chinese nuclear sales uh, to the Saudis and to others in the region. Yes, and uh, Israel is right in the midst of uh, U.S. and uh, China rivalry, and uh, this is not new. Uh, it has been, the, you know, the conflict uh, has emerged, and it has been going on for um, the last 20, 25 years. Uh, Chuck, you clearly remember back in 1999 when um, China asked for Israeli intelligent technology to equip a uh, a full uh, scale uh, technology uh, equipment and know-how in a big aircraft, a Chinese aircraft called the Falcon. Um, Israel signed a contract. It was to the extent of about three hundred or more million dollars. The, no, the US... contract, the contract was a couple of billion. The compensation, billions. The contract, when it was, right, when exactly. It, to get ahead of your story, tell the story in a minute. But the compensation that we ended up paying was exactly. three hundred million. 
Right. So Israel lost here three hundred million dollars uh, compensation for actually uh, nixing the the deal. This was because of American uh, pressure. Um, also, in two thousand and four, there was issues of uh, harpies. Harpies were drones that Israel also sold to uh, sold to China, and uh, had to uh, stop with that. And this is quite uh, understandable when it comes to a choice between uh, China and the United States. Uh, there is no, uh, it's a no-brainer for Israel uh, where our interests lie, where our values lie. I'm not sure China can be very much dependable, uh, dependable ally. Uh, also, its uh, political system is uh, such that uh, certainly is not agreeable with uh, with ours here. Maybe it's agreeable with the Arab countries, but certainly not uh, uh, with us here. And this will continue. We have I... had a, uh, you know, a, an MOU, a, uh, you know, with the, with the Americans about what can and what we cannot sell to the Chinese in terms of technology. So right now it's limited to only to civil technology, whether it's in agriculture, uh, somewhat in, uh, in energy, food technology, uh, water uh, technology, but not much more than that, certainly not military and even not dual use. Well, I think there's um, more to it. And it's actually a difficult choice for us, even though, of course, you're right that when, when it comes down to it, a choice between China and the U.S., we have to uh, come down on the American side. But China is a rising power. Some people, people believe that it will be the power of the 21st century. I think that still remains to be proven, but it, it's certainly going to be the number one, number two power. Now, going back to 99 and 2000, I remember because I was involved in some of the meetings about this, the Falcon deal was actually supposed to be just the harbinger of a huge new relationship between China and Israel. Uh, the Chinese, I believe he was the president or the chairman, uh, Zhang Zemin. Zhang Zemin was the, here. He, came, well, he was the first ever Chinese president's visit here for a right. whole week. He That's even right. stayed in a kibbutz. He went, and, it was amazing. He went town to town. Uh, leaders yes. normally come on a visit for a day, two days. And he's saying he went for a week, stayed in the kibbutz, maybe actually the only place in the world where he could see real communism and or socialism. <laughs> That's right. True communism. True Pure communism. communism. <laughs> right. The, the real idea. And it was supposed to be a breakthrough because the Chinese uh, couldn't buy Western military technology, at least the advanced stuff. And the Russians didn't have sufficiently advanced equipment to sell them. And the Chinese had come to the conclusion that Israel could be a strategic partner for them. Now, the Falcon the, is an early warning and air control aircraft, of, of course, for intelligence purposes, as you were saying as well. Uh, and the U.S. came in and said, no, you can't sell it. And Israel said, why? Uh, it's only Israeli technology. There's no American technology there. There's no reason for you to object to this. And the U.S. said, well, you're right that there's no technology, but we're afraid no that, American technology. Yeah. Excuse me. Right. No American technology. But we're afraid that it, it could be used in a future conflict between China and the U.S. American aircraft could be shot down by an Israeli support or with the help, not by, but with the help of an Israeli supplied system. You can't sell it. And Israel tried for this went on for a couple of years. And it was actually one of the, I think, deepest crises in the U.S.-Israeli relationship. 
it reached the point where not only did the U.S. basically uh, impose a dictate, you will cancel this agreement because they had already imposed sanctions. No American officials were visiting Israel, uh, at least military and defense officials. No Israeli military and defense officials were allowed to visit Washington. And it even came to the point that this, the director general of the Ministry of Defense, Amos Yaron, was forced to resign because the U.S. held him personally responsible. And I believe he's still a PNG, persona non grata, in the United States, as, as well as other uh, senior officials uh, of the ministry, like a guy by the name of Yechil Chorev, mm -hmm. who was the one that uh, really was overseeing the uh, cooperation, military cooperation with China. Okay. Um, so Israel, of course, in the end, was forced to accept the American position. Uh, even though this idea of a clash between American and Israel and uh, Chinese aircraft seemed rather far-fetched at the time. Right? This is over 20 years ago, so there was some reason for Israeli skepticism. In any event, the deal was canceled, and Israel had to pay, in the end, China $300 million in compensation. And the military relationship, which we were really hoping would take off dramatically, had, came to a complete end. There's no military relationship to this day. Then it, the Chinese, it took them a year or two to get over their understandable fury. And they started developing a much stronger economic relationship with Israel. And if we fast forward, let's say, another 15 to 20 years, they were beginning to see Israel as a major source of high-tech cooperation. And again, the U.S. and Western countries weren't willing to sell them everything. And there was a two, three-year period where the U.S. was demanding that Israel uh, cut back on the sales of high-tech technology. And Israel was saying, well, this is all for commercial uses. What's the problem? And I think uh, two things happened. Is One is that the U.S. partially succeeded in convincing Israel that they have dual uses, that the Chinese use this for other uh, non-commercial purposes. And Israel, I think, came to a deeper understanding of the problem just on its own. And so it's clamped down. And now this really uh, dramatically growing economic relationship has been cut back as well. So Israeli-Chinese relations are not what they were, not nearly what they could have been, uh, because we have to give preference to what the U.S. says. And in this case, it ended up matching our own national interests. No, absolutely. No, I'm sure even it, it, it cost Israel uh, billions, maybe even more, than uh, just a couple billions, uh, it oh, could be dozens of years, billions, of, billions uh, yeah. of dollars. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, I think uh, Israel was uh, quite judicious and right to uh, continue and work with the United States and allay all the United States' uh, fears um, about a, um, you know more technology and more capabilities, military or otherwise, to China. Now it goes even to not just the commercial issues, but also to infrastructure. There are many Chinese companies who are here uh, trying to build either a metro, you know, a, a subway system, or the ports, the one port in Haifa. And even in this uh, area of infrastructure, there is a lot of concern that the Americans raise. And this is not only because uh, they would prefer American uh, companies uh, doing that or others, but because of what they see a, a strategic, um, let's say, objective of China, which uh, actually is part and parcel of their road and belt 
project whereby they would really like would want to control the waterways and um, hot water ports all over the world. And of course, the Middle East is a uh, central, very strategic region in terms of waterways, whether it's the Red Sea, whether it's the Mediterranean, whether it's the Suez Canal. So certainly Israel will have to be very careful when it um, continues um, relations with China, but without uh, infringing on Americans' concerns. Absolutely. I think uh, we can draw a few conclusions and maybe wrap up the discussion here, but a few conclusions about the Xi visit uh, to Saudi Arabia for Israel. And one conclusion is that China is rapidly becoming a major strategic player in the region, in the Middle East as a whole. Let's say until the last couple of years, it played a, a strong economic role because they've always imported lots of Middle Eastern oil, but they weren't doing too much more than that. Now, because of the Belt and Road, because of other issues, they are becoming a major strategic player. And we're going to have to take Chinese interests uh, uh, into con greater consideration than we did in the past. Yeah, but we have to remember China has never shown uh, too much affinity to Israel. It was quite hostile when it came to international organizations. They have always voted against Israel when it came to the Palestinian issues or the Arab issues. And at the end of the day, there is no void. And, you know, in the uh, bigger scale of things, um, you know, we have maybe lost the Chinese military market, but we have gained the Indian one. Um, which uh, India seems to be a counterweight and a counterbalance to uh, China. Um, and this is, I believe, uh, the American strategy to uh, keep China at bay or to somehow hedge its capabilities would be through alliances, whether it's with Japan, with South Korea, with India, with Australia. And uh, I think Israel is in a good place with these countries and not with China or Russia and Iran. Okay. Uh, I don't think India is a real alternative to China in terms of their economic clout at this point, but you're absolutely right that the U.S. is trying to do that, and we've been trying to do that. And so last year, the uh, what's it called? The I2U2 forum was established. India, Iran, U.S., and UAE, which was a really interesting combination. But still, when I say we'll have to take Chinese interests into account, it doesn't mean that we have to address them positively, it just means we're going to have to uh, give China more attention than we have. Oh, absolutely. We, we should never poke them in the eye, but at the uh, same time, we should understand, you know, where we are from values point of view and from interest points of view. Absolutely. Another point is that when we look at the expanding ties, especially between the Saudis and the UAE with China, it's happening it, aside from the economic interests it's happening for two other reasons one is that they're unsure of the american security commitment to them and so they're pursuing a hedging strategy to begin with but now when they look at the new government in israel that adds to i would say was probably already pre-existing doubts israel isn't really an alternative for them to the united states okay if you take israel as a partner together with the u.s then that really is the basis for a regional alignment. But if they're not sure of the American commitment, well, Israel doesn't constitute a replacement for the U.S., and it's especially not under the new government. 
So they're attempting a rapprochement of their own with, uh, with Iran. And of course, there's the final point that I would make, which is the one that you raised before, is there is growing danger of Chinese nuclear sales to the region. And at the same time, we have to take into account that the Chinese do seem to be taking a harder role on the Iranian nuclear issue. So maybe there is some good news there. Maybe. I hope so. I hope it's not just a tactical uh, maneuver by right. the uh, Chinese, because we know that they have very, very close relationship uh, with Iran. Actually, they have imported a lot of cheap um, oil from Iran in direct breach of the sanctions uh, in the past. Um, it would be very hard to trust the Chinese um, intentions and also the Chinese uh, conduct. And we see it, uh, by the way, not only in the Middle East, uh, China is challenging the United States in, uh, in Latin America. They do it the same in Africa. And uh, this is a real uh, force to reckon with. It is. And as you say, of course, there, there are normative differences between us and China. And uh, since we are part of the American camp, then we have to go along with American interests, even when sometimes they actually conflict with Israel's own. Anyway, Danny, it's been great talking to you. And we will speak again in a couple of weeks. I hope yes. we will still be a democracy at that time. I can hardly wait to speak to you in two <laughs> weeks. I'm sure we'll still be a democracy then. <laughs> okay, speak to you then. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the IDDF podcast, a product of the Miriam Institute published in proud collaboration with The National Interest. Don't forget to visit our website at www.miriaminstitute.org to learn more about our work. And please do take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and to leave a rating and review at wherever it is you download your podcasts from. Until next time, it's over and out from Chuck, Danny and the IDDF podcast.